Here at Jubilee, we've been working our way through various Advent songs, and today we're going to look at the song of Zechariah as it's found in Luke chapter one, starting at verse 67. These words, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of God. So this morning we open another Advent door on our little Advent calendar and we don't find chocolate or alcohol or anything else in this Advent calendar, we find a hymn, a song, the Song of Zechariah, which in our book of praise is hymn 18, which we're going to sing after the sermon. And it's a song that is sung by Zechariah after the birth of his baby boy. So we have a, a number of pregnant ladies here in our congregation at the moment, so you can imagine that if those pregnant ladies were all to give birth today, well then maybe we would get, you know, we'd get Andre would come up here and he'd get his big flute out and he'd start playing and he'd sing a song, and then maybe Chris Visser would come up and strum the guitar, and Tim Frisbee would be there handing out meat, and it would be, you know, we'd have a party, and we'd, we'd have this big song that we would sing, this song because these babies were born, it would be fantastic. So maybe you can think about that at future baptisms. So that's what Zachariah's doing. He, he, his wife gives birth and he sings a song. But he's singing a song because this baby is very, very special. Because as we read in Luke 1, he's been told that this baby is going to be special and that this baby is going to announce and prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John sings, so, sorry, Zachariah sings a song. He's had about nine months to think about what he's gonna sing because he hasn't been talking very much. He's just been silent unable to talk, and so he's been brewing and thinking about this, this song that he's going to sing. Although, of course, Luke 1.67 says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has inspired him to sing. Interestingly, in Luke 1.41, his wife Elizabeth has also, was also inspired by the Spirit to speak prophetic words. So you have a couple, a man and a wife here, who are both inspired by the Spirit which makes them, in my eyes, a pretty special couple, and I kinda wish that I could go over and have a cup of coffee with them or something. I think that they would be interesting people. And so Zacharias sings this song, and we call this song, historically we call it the Benedictus, which is the Latin word for the first word, or it's the, the Latin of the first word in the song, which is blessed, Benedictus. Mary's song, which we're gonna look at next week, is called the Magnificat, and so that's the, the Latin uh, of the first word of her song, which is magnify. So this is called the Benedictus. Now, if you just read this song of Zechariah, if you just jump into it, without any of the Old Testament background, 
then you don't really know what he's saying. It's a little bit like if you know, you're watching a movie with somebody and then, uh, you know, or you're watching a movie and somebody arrives halfway through the movie and they totally under, don't understand the plot. And then they ask you all kinds of questions while you're trying to watch the movie, which is really annoying, you don't like, you don't like that. So we need to understand what's going on because there's words like horn of salvation, house of David, prophets of old, holy covenant, preparing the way of the Lord. And all these things have lots of meaning if you understand the broader context. So what I would like to do this morning is I would like to explain some of that context, explain what's going on in the Song of Zechariah, and I'm gonna split that into two parts because the song basically has two long sentences. The first one is verse 68 to 75. That's Zechariah singing to God. And then from verse 76 to 79, that's Zechariah singing to his son. So that's how we're gonna split it. So first we're gonna look at Zechariah's song as he sings to God. So is a priest, He's in the temple, he does sacrifices, he's been educated as a priest, he knows his scriptures, and he understands that the whole history of the people of Israel is the history of a people in need of redemption, in need of salvation. They had become a people through God's covenant to Abraham where God promised them that he would be their God, they would be his people, and God said to them, I'm gonna bless you so you can bless the whole world. And then the rest of their history seems like that doesn't really happen. For instance, they get enslaved in Egypt and they become slaves for hundreds of years. And in the Exodus, we hear about God visiting and redeeming his people. And then we also learn as they leave Exodus on the great moment of the Passover when the destroyer, the angel of death, comes to to kill the firstborn children, he comes not only for the Egyptians, he also comes for the Israelites and they need to protect themselves by putting blood on their doors. In other words, the problem is not just that they have been enslaved by others, the problem is also their own enslavement to their own sin. And so even after the Exodus, they go out and they have to redeem their firstborn for the rest of uh, Israelite history, the rest of Jewish history. When you have your firstborn child born, you have to go to the temple and make a sacrifice, recognizing that you owe all of your life represented in the firstborn to God. They leave Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai, they hear God's covenant words, how they're supposed to be a nation of priests that then serves the rest of the world and blesses the rest of the world, and they get all these sacrifices at the same time as a reminder that you have a problem with your own enslavement to sin that needs to be rectified, that needs to be uh, fixed through the sacrifice of an innocent lamb. And then the history of Israel has is, is got all these bad leaders that, in, that enslave their own people and, and do bad things to their people and enemies come and they're scorned and they're hated and the people have this need for redemption throughout all of their history. Eventually the, the kingdom fragments and they go off to Assyria and off to Babylon. The covenant seems broken and they're being punished for their sin and the ark of the covenant, the very pre- presence of the Lord disappears and is gone forever. And so they sing songs like Psalm 137, uh, talking about how can we sing it beside the waters of Babylon in a foreign land. They're living in fear and in sorrow under the tyranny of others. Interestingly, in our book of praise, the hymn 18, Zechariah's song, is set to a tune that was originally created for the song by the waters of Babylon. It was originally created as a tune for that psalm singing about enslavement in Babylon. And so you gotta wonder whether or not the the people who selected that tune for Zechariah's song were thinking that Zechariah's song is perhaps the answer to the enslavement of the people of God by the announcement of Jesus Christ. 
So this, the history of God's people is in need of redemption. They, they eventually, the Medes and the Persians take over from uh, the Babylonians. Cyrus the Great allows them to return from exile. They, they get all excited, but they build the temple, and the old people cry because it's not the same glory as the old, uh, as the old temple. Things are still not right. They're still dealing with their own sin. In the fourth century before Christ, Alexander the Great comes, he takes over. Now the GU Jews live under Greek culture and Greek dominance and their question is still being asked, is God keeping his covenant? We still need redemption. We're living in the shadow of death. We're waiting for a brighter day. In 63 before Christ, 63 BC, the Romans take over, Pompey comes into Jerusalem and he sacks the city of Jerusalem and he enters the temple and he enters the most holy of holies desecrates it, and now they live under Roman rule, strangers and aliens in a, in a foreign culture, fearing God, or sorry, serving God in fear. So Zechariah is a priest. He understands that this has been the history of God's people. It's a history of the need for redemption, but he also understands that throughout this whole history, there has been a prophetic hope that the people just been holding onto. They've been holding onto this prophetic hope that they've been singing in things like Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. The horn of salvation, is a, it's an old biblical symbol of, you can think of the big horns on a big, huge bull or a cow. Maybe some of your kids have seen that. Usually with cows, we cut off the horns, but sometimes if you go to an agricultural show, you see this bull with big horns, and in the Bible times, that was a symbol of strength and of power. And so when they talk about the horn of salvation, they're saying God's gonna come with strength and power and he's gonna gore our enemies and he's gonna, he's gonna destroy the enemies so that we can be saved again, so that we can be delivered. God's gonna come and save his people. In Psalm 132, it says, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. And the word anointed there in Hebrew is the word Messiah, which in Greek is Christ. His enemies I clothe with shame. So the Old Testament prophets and, and songwriters, they're like, we need redemption and we're hoping that God is gonna bring a horn of salvation. He's gonna bring a Messiah, a Christ, a, a king who's gonna come and remember his covenant, destroy his enemies and save us. And so you had all these prophets talked about that. All kinds of biblical prophets. Moses already in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise for you up a prophet like me. David in Psalm 110 says that the Messiah said, uh, sorry, I said that this Messiah would sit at the right hand of God and that his enemies would be under his feet like a footstool. Isaiah calls this Christ to come, Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the wounded one for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquities. Jeremiah calls him the branch from the stump of Jesse and the Lord our righteousness. Ezekiel says that the Messiah will be placed over his people as the one shepherd, his servant from the line of David, who will tend his people as their shepherd. Daniel sees him as the son of man whose dominion will be an everlasting dominion, and Micah calls him the ruler in Israel. So you understand all of that history, all of that understanding of, of how the Jewish people thought about their need of redemption and the redemptor, redeemer to come. You would sum it up like this. God will remember his covenant with Abraham, the words given through the prophets. God is gonna send a Messiah, Christ, who's gonna come and redeem his people, a horn of salvation to save them from their enemies, and in a deeper sense, save them from themselves and their own tendency for sin, a savior that would bless them so they could fear the Lord, sorry, serve the Lord without fear and be a blessing to the world around them as they were originally intended to be. 
And the New Testament people in Zechariah's day were waiting for this. People talked about these things. Luke 2, verse 25 says that the devout Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. In Luke 2, 38, the prayerful Anna was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. In Luke 3, 15 says the people were in expectation. In Luke 24, 21, it says that they were hoping for a Messiah to redeem Israel. People talked about this kind of stuff. People understood what I just explained to you. They expected also that a messenger would come from God before the Christ would come, that there would be someone else who would come who would announce to them the Christ, the Messiah, has come. And we find that right at the very end of the Old Testament, for example. So in Malachi chapter three, it says, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his people. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he's, behold, he's coming, says the Lord. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He, the Messiah, will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then in verse, uh, chapter four, the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, we read this. For behold, the day's coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the even, evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, and I, uh, uh, coming, that day coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be like ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I commanded him at Mount Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before this great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children uh, to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with, decree, uh, with a decree of utter devastation. So you can imagine, if that was understood by the people of Israel and understood by Zechariah, the priest, who knew the scriptures, you could understand his excitement when an angel appears to him and says, your son will be that Elijah. That's what we read in Luke 1. Your son is gonna be the one, finally, who's gonna announce that the Christ is coming. That the Christ is coming. And so Zechariah, when he finally believed that, would have been very excited about that, and then when his child is born, you can now finally understand what he means when he sings. So now after I've explained all of that, listen again to what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of, of, of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant to us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See how that would have made sense to the people of Israel and to Zechariah himself in that time. Which brings us then to the second part of the song, where he now sings to his baby. He sings to his baby. It's like Zachariah takes, he's, he's an older guy, and he takes his newborn son in his arms, and he says, you, child, will be the prophet of the Most High God. 
couldn't help but think this past week how uh, someone, like a comedian like Brian Regan would make a joke of that. Be like, you know, someone bragging, well, my son's going to be a doctor. Well, my son's going to be a teacher. Well, my son's going to be a lawyer. And then John the Baptist says, well, my son's going to be the prophet of the Most High God. He's extremely proud of this, I think. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus calls him that. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 calls John the Baptist the greatest prophet of the entire Old Testament and that John the, prophet, John the Baptist is indeed the fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi 3. Jesus confirms that. So then this is what Zechariah says. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The Lord in his mercy will, uh, is visiting those who sit in darkness like a sunrise, like Malachi 4 mentions, the sun of righteousness. It's an image of redemption. The people who walked in darkness have seen a glorious light. The thick darkness of the peoples, uh, the, the thick darkness has covered the peoples, but the Lord will arise and bring glory upon you, Isaiah 60. The prince of peace will come, the living word who is the lamp to our feet, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the job of you, my child, says Zechariah as he sings this sign, your job, he says in verse 77, is to give people knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. So he's, he's telling his little baby, this is what you are going to do. Your job in all of this is to give knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. sins. And this is where this text, this hymn, touches down in a personal way also in our lives. Because John the Baptist takes Christmas from being about a cute baby and decorations and a happy holiday to something that can literally change your life. John the Baptist's job is to explain to people in his day and to explain to all of us through the scriptures how this, all this ancient Jewish history that I just spoke about and all this, this priestly dad of his and his song, how all of that really matters to us in 2019 and 2020. John the Baptist is an Advent prophet, but not because he prepares us to meet baby Jesus in the manger, but because he prepares us to meet the grown-up living Jesus. He prepares us to meet the real Jesus, the dying Jesus, the, the resurrected Jesus, the ascended Jesus, the returning Jesus who will come on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. Think about this. How are all of the Christmas, uh, or all of the ministry of Jesus introduced in all of the Gospels? It all starts with John the Baptist. All four Gospels start with John the Baptist. And yet, in this little nativity scene over here, there's no John the Baptist. We wouldn't put John the Baptist in Christmas, even though he plays an essential part in the entire overall Christmas story. And the reason we don't do that is because he is a wild, strange, kind of weird man. We don't want some strange desert-dwelling prophet dressed in camel hair cloak and eating locust sandwiches to spoil our cute nativity scene and our fun Christmas holiday. And yet John the Baptist is the one who brings us the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. 
So if you have a, your Bible with you, just look at Luke chapter 3 for a moment, which is just one page to the right of where we've been reading. In Luke chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 3, you get all these names. It talks about so-and-so was Caesar, so-and-so was governor, these people were the tetrarchs, here was the high priest. In other words, here's all of the movers and shakers, all of the important people in the world. And in verse 2 says, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. God's not going to come and God's not going to speak through all these big, powerful movers and shakers. He's going to be out in the wilderness speaking to John, the son of Zechariah. And in verse 3, it says, John, he went into all of the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in verse 4 through 6, it mentions Isaiah's prophecy, which we looked at last week. And then you get, these, you get people that come out to him to get baptized. They come out, but they seem to be doing it because they're just curious. Like John is, is this interesting, camel-hair-wearing, locust-eating, wild prophet guy, and we're kind of interested, so hey, like, why not? Let's go out and get baptized by John. This seems to be interesting. And then you look at verse 7 and 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So let me ask you this. How does John the Baptist prepare us for Christmas? How does John the Baptist declare to us salvation and the forgiveness of sins. In his crazy, desert-dwelling, locust-eating, camel-hair-wearing way, he cries out, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. This is not a holiday outing for the curious. The wrath of God is coming. And it's not just coming against all the people that you don't like. It's coming against you. That's how he prepares the people of God. He tells us that judgment against sin is a real thing, even when we're distracted by it by holiday decorations. God knows and sees all. He's returning, and the books will be opened, and they will be opened not just for the enemies of the church, they will be opened also for the church. All your sin will be laid bare and you can't sit around in this life or the next pointing your fingers and talking about those bad people over there. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. The destroyer comes for all. The ax is laid at the root of the trees and Jesus has come to cut away the dead wood, the unrepentant, and to throw them in the fire. Which reminds me of another John who sang this song. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Do you, do you know where in the Bible that one is? That's a Johnny Cash song. But that's an Advent song. That's a John the Baptist type of song as well. Because Advent is a time where we admit that you can't hide from the judgment of God, and you can't hide by God's judgment either by saying, well, we're the children of Israel. We, we have Abraham as a father. You can't hide from it saying, well, I'm a good church member. We're good people here. 
We're on the right side of the tracks. The problem is with the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the big bad world out there. That's where the problem lies. Because after all, we're just victims here. You can't say, well, we go to church and we got Bibles and books of praise and we go to catechism, we even remember some of it. John the Baptist in Luke 3 basically says, big deal. God can turn stones into catechism reciting church members. Big deal. And you look at what he says in, in verse 15 through 18. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John said to them, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, who straps of, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So how does John the Baptist prepare the way? How does he fulfill Zechariah's song? What kind of knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of his sins does he proclaim? He tells us this, brothers and sisters, that despite all of the ho, 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 jolly Christmas feelings this time of year, which are great, but despite them, and despite your good resume of a good Christian person as a covenant believer, judgment will be executed on earth that Jesus is coming with a winnowing fork, with a pitchfork in his hand, and he comes to separate the good wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the weeds. It's a terrifying image of the Lord Jesus Christ in his second return coming to judge. That's how John the Baptist prepares us for Christmas. His message is this, repent, That means turn 180 degrees and go the other direction. That doesn't mean say sorry. We all know people who say sorry a million times and never change. It means change your life and go the opposite direction. And this is why we don't like putting the wild John the Baptist in our nativity scenes because it kind of messes up our jolly Christmas. Because his jolly Christmas message is this, that you and I and everyone will be burned with unquenchable fire unless we repent. Unless we turn away from sin and toward the Lord Jesus Christ with faith. Unless we bear fruit keeping in, uh, with, righteousness, with repentance. Unless we stop hiding behind our morality. And unless we stop hiding behind our good covenant church status and our religiosity and we surrender our entire life to the Lord Jesus Christ and we repent and believe. So have you done that? Are you doing that in your everyday life? Am I doing that? Or am I just sort of comfortably hiding behind my status of one of Abraham's kids? Now, perhaps some of you are thinking, this is the worst Advent Christmas message I've ever heard. It's the least thing that feels like Christmas ever. And I would propose that's because you've adopted a strange view of Christmas rather than a biblical view one. We start with John the Baptist. And in Luke 3, verse 18, it says something interesting. In Luke 3, verse 18, it says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. The Bible calls John the Baptist's message of repentance 
good news. It calls it the gospel. The good news. Because it's good news to be told the reality of your situation. It's good news to be told that you gotta open up your eyes and change your life. It's good news when you go to a doctor and they're truthful and give you the real diagnosis and tell you what really lies ahead on the road. It's good news to be told to repent. It's very good news for someone like me to stand up here on this morning and say, change your life where you need to change your life. Because if the, the, the message of repentance was not there, it would mean that we'd just all be stuck in our current situation, that we'd all be helpless victims with no way to change. But the call to repentance has got hope to it. It's got good news attached to it because it comes with the message that you can change, that you can repent. The good news of John the Baptist's dramatic call for repentance is a reminder of judgment is that by the empowering, saving reality of Jesus Christ, you can change your life. So we read in John 1, 77 to 78, that John's job is to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of his sins, and now here's an important word, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Salvation and forgiveness and repentance is possible because of the tender mercy of our God. Because God has redeemed and visited his people in Jesus Christ. The power for your repentance, the power for the change in your life doesn't come from your own abilities. It comes from outside of you. The good news is that judgment doesn't need to fall on us because we can repent and believe that the judgment has fallen on Christ instead. You see, Zechariah taught his son John very well. Zechariah was a priest, and he knew what he was talking about. So that in, in John 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who removes all that judgment from us. So, brothers and sisters, we are 10 days out from Christmas. How's your shopping going? 10 days out from Christmas. I hope you have a really good Christmas and holiday season. But don't miss what Christmas really offers. Jesus' arrival on Christmas Day and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return mean that real change is possible in your life by the grace of God. Real, lasting, eternal change. Change for for a glorious future a glorious eternal future, not of unquenchable fire, but of unquenchable joy. When death's dark shadow will be gone and tyranny shall cease and our feet will tread the path of peace for eternity, but also change for today, repentance today, in this life, this Christmas, a new life. So I encourage all of you this Advent season to praise God for the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, and to examine your own life, to look at your own life, to open this Advent calendar and hear, yeah, the hard but the hopeful warning of John the Baptist as he calls out, repent and believe, and to ask the Lord to to show you where you need to perhaps stop making excuses in your life and stop blaming others in your life and think about where you need to change where you in your everyday life, 
at home, at work, in your family, amongst your friends, at school, where you need to turn away from some things in order to follow God in other things, according to his word. Where you need to shed some of your, your, your just your curious or your religious, traditional religiosity so that you can cling to Jesus in real personal faith, trusting him that by his grace in your relationship with him, that you can walk newly, you can walk rightly where perhaps you've been walking wrongly. Now ask the Lord to help you with that in prayer. Ask others to pray that for you. And let's pray that together now. Our Lord, Father in heaven, it's true this sermon doesn't feel very Christmassy. But we trust your holy scriptures. This is a message, a message for Advent. So help us, Lord, not to get lost in sentimentality or traditional religiosity this Christmas. And give us your spirit to repent and believe, to change our lives, to trust Jesus and live rightly by his grace, right where we are, according to his word. Help us, Lord, to rejoice genuinely, to give thanks for Jesus. Give us real joy. And help us in that way also to await eagerly the second coming of Christ. Hear our prayer, Lord, and also the song which we are about to sing, In Christ's name alone, amen.